You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. In the online world of social and political commentary, the voice of American Christians is represented in private voice message chats where the pressing social and political questions of our day are considered and discussed from all angles. These are their stories. These are the Signal Conversations. Okay, so to start us off, how did you come across The Great Reset and why did you read it? Why did you want to read The Great Reset by Mark Morano? Hey, good morning, Garrett. Um, yeah, The Great Reset, uh, Mark Morano. I, this has been a fascinating book for me to read. Um, and also, I think it's been kind of uh, validating or uh, vindicating in a way. It's vindicated some of our uh, opinions from the COVID lockdown. I remember uh, a couple of years ago, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, there was a mutual friend of ours who... Uh, posted a rather snarky reply on my Facebook page when I was arguing that this is how, you know, the church lockdowns, this is how uh, church persecution happens. This is what it looks like. It's It doesn't come in and say, well, with Gestapo uniforms and say, aha, we are evil. We are here to persecute you. You will no longer be allowed to attend church. Uh, that's never how it happens. There's always some legal or moral justification for doing so. And in this case, it was, well, we have a pandemic. You know, even though protests are allowed, church gatherings are somehow not allowed. Um, and I wrote about that. And this mutual friend came in, and he's a doctor, and really poked fun at the idea, called it conspiracy, and, and was talking about how, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, the 19 or the uh, 1819 flu or what, or the, what, when was the Spanish flu? I don't remember, but that it was exactly the same, you know, it's the standard protocol, nothing to see here. There's no, there's no conspiracy. You guys are putting on your tinfoil hats and you look stupid. And, you know, this book is like, uh, it's, it's a vindication of the point because it doesn't try to connect all the dots. It actually just quotes the leftist global elites in their own words. You know, the World Economic Forum, the Klaus Schwab's, the Bill Gates, the George Soros's. Um, it, it allows them to speak for themselves and to say, hey, this is a, a great idea for uh, shutting down... Uh, you know, or for, for combating uh, climate change or for doing this. This is a good mechanism. This really worked well. You know, the, the concept of 15-minute cities, you know, where we uh, limit everybody from moving around to prevent climate change, of course, all in the name of climate change. But really, it's just a control mechanism. And they're very open about it. I, that's the astonishing thing is that they're very open and honest about it. Um, 
And it, it kind of reminded me of as I was reading through it. Um, there's a great scene in the in the uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, the book, and I don't think it's in the movies, but it's in the book where uh, Frodo is leaving the Shire. He knows he has this burden of taking the ring to Mordor, and he doesn't want to take anybody with him because he doesn't want to lead them to their death. But the three hobbits, Merry, Pippin, and, and Sam, they figure this out. And so they're secretly planning the whole time to follow him the whole way. And so the, the story is they're just going to go, he's going to go live in a small house in Buckland out of the way and kind of go into quiet retirement. And then his plan is to then sneak off. And they know this. And so there, there's this little cat and mouse game going on as they move to Buckland. And there's a scene where Frodo uh, is sitting in uh, uh, the house with them after dinner. And he's finally going to tell them what his plans are. And he's just, he's, he's just struggling because the, the amount of information, the whole story is just so overwhelming that he doesn't even know where to start. And they all kind of have this conspiratorial look on their faces and they say, let's, let's help you out a little bit. Here's what you're going to, here's what you're, you're thinking. You're going to tell us that you've got to go to, uh, you got to leave the Shire forever. <laughs> you've got to take this, this burden with you. You know, that you have this task to do and, uh, they know, they just tell him here's, here's what we know. And it's exactly what he was going to tell them without knowing how to tell them. And it's like, he's just shocked. And the chapter's called a conspiracy unmasked. And that's, that's exactly how this book reads, how the great reset reads. It's a conspiracy unmasked. It's what we all kind of know is happening in the world, whether you have, we talked about why the left hates Donald Trump so much. Uh, whether you're talking about the COVID lockdowns, whether you're talking about the federal reserve, the banking system, uh, inflation, uh, printing money, like all of it, it all relates together. It all is about a central uh, planning group of men and I think some women who have such a vast amount of wealth that they're, they're, they, they've essentially moved beyond the normal parameters of of human existence, which is to want to just gain more and more things. And they, they can have anything they want. And so now what their focus is, is changing the world itself, bending the world, using their power to bend the world to their own ideals. And it would be very, very, very good for everyone to read uh, the book because it's such a good, just a point-by-point summary of that of that whole concept of the whole conspiracy is just laid out and Mark Brown does a good job on that but I'm curious to see if if you agree with me that it reads very similar to Saul Alinsky that's that was another book I really compared it to was Rules for Radicals and I thought this is a just a clear concise formula here's here's what we plan to do <laughs> and and uh, it's so obvious that you don't have to it, it, you don't have to view it as conspiracy. It's just laid out. So I'm curious to see what you think about about that whole point. Yeah, I would agree that it reads very similar to 
Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky. And that is to say, it fits the community organizer playbook. It fits the scheme which Saul Alinsky admits to, and you don't have to read between the lines. He says outright explicitly in Rules for Radicals that he's being Machiavellian about this. He's being a Marxist about this. When you peel back the layers on Alinsky and you realize that <laughs> before he became a community organizer or the father of community organizing, he was going to the range every day with his fellow Marxist and preparing for a violent revolution, an attempt at something like what the Bolsheviks pulled off in Russia. He was preparing for that here in the U.S. and then realized at a certain point, wait, wait a second, no, that's, that's not quite the best way to go about this. We need to be clever. We need to be smarter. We need to be more patient. We've got to work for gradual change over time. And then what he does is he draws on the example of Satan himself. He dedicates rules for radicals to Satan himself, calls him the first radical, and he draws on the example and the writing and the thinking of guys like Machiavelli to say, you should go into communities and target minorities and convince them, or at least a significant portion of those communities, that they have grievances. In a very Howard Zinn uh, style, in, in a way that is very compatible and very much related to the historical revisionism of Howard Zinn in A People's History of the United States, you have Alinsky going into minority communities and saying, you guys have been disenfranchised. Your rights have been violated. You have not been getting your due. You need reparations. You need someone to go to the elected politicians, the elected government officials, and demand your due, demand your pound of flesh, demand affirmative action, demand compensation, demand special exceptions when you break the law or when you want such or this other thing. And in that way, you will not convince everyone in a minority community that they have been abused or neglected by virtue of their being minorities, but you'll convince some. And the some you convince will get upset. And where there wasn't an issue, you will have created an issue. Then you will have a polarized issue. Then you freeze that. You keep it, right? Keep it fresh and just lock it in and <laughs> offer yourself as a representative to the side that agrees that there is this grievance. And then when as their representative, as their spokesperson, you go saying that you have whatever the percentage is, 45% of the community, 35% of the community agreeing with you that they have been aggrieved and they asked you to come and speak with the elected representative, you can go and negotiate for what you wanted. And when we put it in these terms, I think a lot of people today assume that that's just the way that politics has always been. That's, that's just politics. That's the way that it's always been. That's the way that it has to be. And 
That's why they're so turned off by politics. If they have any decency, if they have any morals, if they have <laughs> any respect for themselves and any fear of God, they say, well, I don't want to get involved because that's politics and politics is dirty. Well, that is dirty. That approach to politics is dirty, but that's not the way it's always been. And even if there's always been a certain strain of those kinds of men like Alinsky, like Zinn, even if there's always been that to contend with in the public square, in government, in business, that doesn't mean we can just shrug and check out and say, well, it's none of my business, right? Like the Kermit the Frog meme with the sweet potato, but that's none of my business. But I would agree. Yes, it, 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 what Mark Morano lays out in The Great Reset is highly compatible with the work of Saul Linsky, and it fits the evidence. It fits the evidence. And I, I don't say that the opposite direction on purpose, because it's not that the evidence is being forced to fit the theory. That's uh, when we should be very concerned is when evidence is being tampered with and suppressed or twisted and spun in such a way as to confirm our biases. But in their own words, in, in the words of men like Howardson, in the words of men like Saul Alinsky, this was their big idea to push for global communism, to push for communism here in the United States, to see the United States and to convince other Americans to see the United States as what's wrong with the world, our prosperity, our strength, our confidence, our morality, our fear of God as what's wrong with the world. That was their mission. That was their objective. But that was not the end. That was a means to the end. And the end really was and remains global communism with America, if at all possible, either removed as a hindrance at, you know, at, at least, uh, or at best leading the drive towards global communism. And then you come to the climate hysteria, which has been a feature of American politics and the news cycle for decades, yeah, since the days of Howardson and Saul Alinsky, there have been these sensationalist headlines about the polar ice caps melting and the global temperatures rising. And we, we've got to stop uh, driving these internal combustion engine vehicles or else we're all going to die. The sea levels are going to rise and flood the cities on the coasts and it's going to be the collapse of civilization as we know it. Again and again, those predictions have been false but it's just like the cult leader who insists and writes a book about and you know, starts preaching sermons on how he knows the exact day that the second coming of Christ is going to uh, happen. And, and he, he sets the prediction out there and that day comes and goes and the second coming of Christ does not occur as he had foretold. And then what does he do? He just moves the date out into the future a little farther. It's just like that with the doomsday predictions regarding climate change. The doomsday predictions don't happen, don't occur. And then what do they do? They just move the goalposts. They move the goalposts out into the future, always far enough 
out into the future that by the time we reach that date, if it's not occurred, they are banking on the majority of us having forgotten that they made that prediction in the first place. And whatever they got, they got. Whatever concessions, whatever reparations, whatever power politically and economically they were able to achieve in the interim, well, they have it and they hold on to it and they're not going to give it back. And they use that to push for their larger agenda, which is the redistribution of wealth and status and authority and attention, if you will, even online with social media. I think we see big tech being, if not originally conceived of to pursue these ends, certainly having been hijacked after it was conceived of. And a kind of bait and switch for those that were architects of the online world that we inhabit and also definitely the users, the vast majority of users like you or I got onto these social media platforms in the first place thinking this is the public square. Here we can express our ideas, our values, our hopes and dreams for the future, what we think would be best or what we think the answer is to this or that question of our day. And other people will be free to talk back and tell us that they agree or they disagree or debate with us. And then as the years go by, it becomes increasingly clear. No, no, nope. You are not free to say what you would attribute to the traditional Christian civilization uh, point of view on this or that question. No, no, you're not free to communicate that here. That goes against our community standards. That will not be tolerated. We're going to give you a strike for this. We're going to take that down. We're going to shadow ban you here. We're going to suspend your account in this case. We're going to limit your reach. We're going to make you have to pay us in order to access or <laughs> be seen by, have your content seen by your audience. And that's where independent websites like Climate Depot come in. I haven't, I'll admit, I haven't checked out a lot of climatedepot.org material in recent years, but back when we were writing for On The Rock's blog and I did that series on climate change and I was trying to research Al Gore and what's the timeline here for An Inconvenient Truth, I kept going back again and again to Climate Depot and it was a wealth of information that the media is not providing to we the people. And then when you dig deeper in the intervening years since then, you find out, oh, actually the media is doing the same thing, the corporate media, the news media, those who were supposed to be the journalists covering these things and explaining them to us and reporting on these things, doing what we typically do not have time as working men in blue-collar jobs or even white-collar jobs, but we don't have the time to research and track down ourselves, much less get out to an audience that's following. The corporate media is carrying water for this agenda. They are actively advancing only one side of the conversation. And if they invite on the other side, it is typically an ambush. It's typically a setup like the old gladiator games in Rome, you know, 
take, for instance, the movie Gladiator, where you have Russell Crowe's character, Maximus, Decimus Meridius Maximus, and his fellow uh, <laughs> Carthaginian uh, uh, <coughs> reenactors, they're not supposed to win the war against the Roman reenactors when they're reenacting a battle between Carthage and Rome. They're not supposed to win, and yet they do, right? They do, and it's this huge upset because they weren't given the same weapon, uh, you know, uh, weapon quality, armor, uh, gear. They weren't given what the Roman reenactors were given because they weren't supposed to win. They were supposed to lose. And so also, when guys like Mark Murano are invited on a lot of corporate media, they are set up to lose. They, they are set up in such a way that they're not supposed to win the debate. And then if they don't play by the rules, well, then it's said, ah, okay, see, right, you can't take this guy seriously. He's not being polite. And it's just, it, it's half a dozen of one, six of the other, heads I win, tails you lose. The conclusions are all foregone. And when you see what kind of an echo chamber has been created in corporate media, in academia, in politics, increasingly in the corporate world, it all really does add up to a compelling case in favor of Mark Morano's book, The Great Reset. And I think, you know, you look at some of what's being said by the WEF and Klaus Schwab, and not just in recent years, but for decades, since the founding, since the inception of the WEF in 1971, it's hidden in plain sight, really. But would you agree that what Mark Morano is doing first and foremost with his book the Great Reset, is he's compiling that timeline. He's doing that hard work and that heavy lifting of confirming what we vaguely recall hearing bits and pieces of here and there, or we are afraid to admit that we suspect from looking at the evidence, that call it a gut feeling, that this is just off, the smell's wrong, something's happened here, something shifted, something changed in the matrix. <laughs> this is the matrix. <laughs> Would you agree that the really useful thing he's doing is actually just providing quotes and dates and people that you can then go back and research and confirm for yourself? Yes, I don't know. This is actually what it is. And and I guess, you know, on the second part of that question, I would ask, is there any way that he could be mistaken in what he's laying out there? Is there, you know, if we were going to, steel man, not straw man, the criticism of what Mark Morano lays out in the Great Reset book. Is there a, a chance that he is wrong and that this does not add up to what it certainly appears to add up to based on his findings and, and what we're looking at here? Yeah, those are good questions. Um, I think that for me anyway, I think what I like most about the book is that it's not reading into anything um, as much as it is just letting the people speak for themselves. In fact, it really reminds me a lot. I don't know if you would agree with this or not. I think you would, though. It, it's almost like the sequel to Liberal Fascism by Jonah Goldberg. Jonah Goldberg, he goes through the history of the left 
um, from Woodrow Wilson uh, all the way up and shows just in their own words how <clears throat> how they described the problems of society, how they intended to fix them, and how they attempt how they were going to use power and control. But um, you know, of course, the 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 front of the book, the cover is the the smiley face with the Hitler mustache. How their reimagined vision of it was through, um, you know, a, a happy fascism, a, a fascism that doesn't come in with guns ablazing and presenting itself as evil, but as a a fascism, uh, a tyranny of smiles, where everything is for your good, and there's moral equivalence to war, uh, and there's moral equivalences to everything uh, necessary to gain power over you, which is exactly what you know the lockdowns were in the pandemic, weren't they? It's it's everything is for your good, everything is for your happiness uh, and your ultimate benefit. But really, what it is is it's us being able to dictate terms so that we can organize the world the way things are. Now, that was the conclusion of liberal fascism, where it just lets people speak for themselves in the past, and it's a foreshadowing of what is to come. And I would say that the Great Reset is the here and now. And you see the outworking of all of those plans uh, is all coming to fruition through the quote-unquote Great Reset. Um, so I, I, I really think that what people, what everyone should do, if you, really, if you really want to get a full picture of the Great Reset, is uh, read Liberal Fascism by Jonah Goldberg and read Dark Agenda and Radical Sun by David Horowitz, who he was a... He, he is... He is the he he was a, a radical leftist himself until he saw and was personally exposed to the great evils of that movement. Um, read David Horowitz, read liberal fascism, and then read the Great Reset. And what you find is, and this is kind of answers your question about authenticity. It all matches. You're coming from. One writer who is just focused on what leftists have said about themselves in the past. You have one writer who, in David Horowitz, who is, he helped found some of these organizations. Uh, he helped, uh, he, he was a very big name in leftist circles in the radical 60s and 70s. And came out of that, and so he, he knows their playbook. And then you have, and actually I'd add Saul Alinsky to that, Rules for Radicals, because you have an, an actual leftist organizer, community organizer, who lays out the plan. And then you have uh, Great Reset, which is telling what the modern, current-day uh, globalist leftists are doing and saying right now. And when you, when you take those different sources and put them all together, you create a tome of, here's what the left is about. Number one, they're completely godless. They do not believe in God. And therefore, they don't acknowledge his authority. So they see the world as evolutionary, Darwinian, and temperate. And they want to solve all the problems of the world without the acknowledgement of sin or sinful nature. Um, and that is what directly leads to communism.
that is communism, I think, in a nutshell. I mean, it's more complex than that, but it's essentially, you know, organizing the world through, and you have to do it through force. That's the problem. You cannot do it, uh, people do not willingly uh, give up their freedoms in exchange for uh, this sort of altruism. And so it has to be forced. And if you're going to force it and you're doing it non-militarily, then you have to have alternate reasons for forcing people to do things, which means that you have to create a another moral reason for doing it that that exists outside of the real reason. So it's like we need to we need to be able to organize society uh, and keep them at home. Well, we have lockdowns for that. Or we, we want to keep people from moving around and, and uh, generating carbon emissions, so we have 15-minute cities. All of it's done, though, in the name of something else, you know. And so, yeah, I would, I would say that, uh, I don't know, uh, you, tell me if you would add anything to that, because add anything to that book, because I, I think that if you take Radical Sun, Dark Agenda by David Horowitz, both by David Horowitz, Liberal Fascism by Jonah Goldberg, Saul Linsky's Rules for Radicals, and The Great Reset by Mark Morano. If you took those five books, I think you would have a fantastic understanding of what the left is really up to. And, you know, I'll stop there. I, I want to get your response to that before I say anything else. That is an excellent list of books. And I would add a few titles. One would be Propaganda by Edward Bernays, double nephew, double first nephew of Sigmund Freud. His book, Propaganda, launched the whole profession of public relations as we know it. The madmen, advertising executives, business model, you know, the, the, the popularized uh, story from the hit TV show Mad Men, that was his brainchild. That was the brainchild of Edward Bernays. The reason why we know Sigmund Freud's name in the first place is according to the BBC documentary, excellent documentary miniseries, Century of Self, which is all about Edward Bernays and what he launched in the last century. It explains that Uncle Sigmund's book was sent to his nephew in New York from the old country. Bernays read it and thought, this is brilliant, and decided to just scale up the findings of Uncle Sigmund and use those findings to promote his Uncle Sigmund's book and then to capitalize on the reputation which he had now built up of his Uncle Sigmund to launch his own career as an advisor to corporations looking to sell their products, politicians looking to sell their candidacy. A lot of our news media really is built out of the ideas of Edward Bernays and the power of suggestion, the power of the soft sell. Don't make all of your claims explicit. In fact, don't make your most important claims explicitly. Suggest them through the power of negative and positive association. Leave impressions and then move on before people really have a chance to engage materially with what the evidence is and what the claims are. Is that true? Is that right? Is that good? 
Neil Postman would be the foil here in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, about the erosion of the attention span of the average American, thanks to the radio, thanks to television. If he could only see us now, he would be horrified at the way the internet has actually made that even worse. It's it's an even worse problem now, everything he was describing, in terms of that power of soft sell, the power of suggestion, only all the more rather than less, because through social media and through search engines, a lot of us thought that these feeds we were I mean, being fed, really, they're, they're called feeds because we're being fed information. But these feeds we thought were being curated based on what we want to know. And actually, in point of fact, these feeds are being curated based on what the wealthiest, most powerful people in the world want us to know. And more to the point, what they want us to not know. And so it's a, it's a secret in plain sight now, but in the early years of big tech online, Facebook and Twitter and Google and YouTube, it was dismissed as crackpot, conspiracy theory, you're just paranoid, you're a psychotic individual who needs to get some help. If you think these things, that these big tech giants were curating our feeds based on their ideology to keep us from arriving at certain conclusions and to, in some sense, nudge us to the conclusions they want us to come to so that we buy the products that we do, so that we vote for who we do, so that we don't vote for who they don't want us to vote for, so that we don't actually achieve independence and true liberty. But that is to say, another book I would add to the list would be Nudge by Richard H. Thaler and Cass R. Sunstein, talking about the uh, essentially rebranding, if you will, uh, giving uh, a kind of Edward Bernays squared or even cubed treatment to this global initiative where climate change is concerned, where the LGBTQ uh, agenda is concerned, where progressivism is concerned, where the redistribution of wealth and power is concerned. It's applying Edward Bernays's schemes to Edward Bernays' <laughs> Edward Bernays's schemes to say we're going to rebrand what essentially is uh, manipulation. It's mass manipulation through the careful designing of technology in particular. You know, something to, to research here that's not necessarily a book that I've read, but it is something that it's easy to find information on if one does even just a little bit of searching. You know, check out Stanford's Persuasive Technologies Lab in Palo Alto, California, where that's the whole point is to get psychologists together with programmers and the technologists and together to design more and more clever mousetraps for our attention and for our affection and for our decision-making paradigms and thereby to, in some sense, ultimately program us because they have a view of the world and what the problems are in the world and what the solutions to those problems are, which in the absence of God is hostile to the traditions of the American war for independence, the earlier 
centuries of the American Republic. It's hostile to the themes of the Protestant Reformation, although it would say, and Roman Catholics would say this too, it's the fulfillment of the end goal or the the original rebellion of the Protestants against Rome and, and the authority of Rome. But I would actually say this is more in line with the ideals of the French Revolution, which applied the Roman Catholic persecution of Huguenots, for instance, in France to the church itself. That same intolerant, inflexible, narrow-mindedness that refused to be reasonable or reason, and it refused to extend grace and be patient with, and even potentially uh, (laughs) be (laughs) called to repentance by Protestants, that was applied, that whole framework, that whole mindset was applied from the vantage point of the Rousseauian and Marxist philosophies to the church. So in other words, the Enlightenment, when it went secular, when it decided to just throw out all religion, except for the religion that was the cult of uh, reason, uh, you know, it, it, it became hostile to the church in much the same way that Rome was hostile to Protestants and those Christians who tried to call Rome to repentance. So also right now we're getting a very similar kind of pietistic uh, virtue signaling from the woke, from the ESG score touting folk, from the WEF types, from big tech, from Democrats. There's a self-righteousness that is also extraordinarily narrow-minded and does not want to be reasoned with, does not want to be argued with, debated with, questioned. Because ultimately, the left is doing what communists always do in the end. They're silencing the folks who would point out that they're not doing what they said they were going to do. They're not abiding by their own principles. This actually was just the same thing that it always is with these types, which was a desire to get more wealth and power for themselves. All the while, like Machiavelli, like Alinsky, pretending at being altruistic and pursuing our good. It's not actually pursuing our good if the big tech types and the big government types join hands and start restricting our choices down to whatever they want us to have. And they start nudging, nudge, 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 nudging us in the direction of a globalist communist utopia. That's not actually in our best interest, but as has always been the case for the people at the very top of the party, it's very lucrative for them. It's very profitable for them. And if they don't fear God, well, then this life is all there is. And even if it's wrong, they're going to have a good time while the good times last. Uh, see also Mao, the untold story. Actually, I would, I would recommend if somebody wanted to learn more about the broader scope of communist efforts that have been as successful as they could be, I would recommend Mao, the untold story to understand how China got to be the way that it did from Mao Zedong.
And I would also recommend, on the Russian side of it, opening up Orlando Feige's A People's Tragedy and the before and after and during of the Russian Revolution, throwing off czarist rule, the kinds of arguments and the kinds of dynamics in play in Russia are eerily similar to what we see playing out in America right now, where you have some who feel really guilty about how lavish their lifestyles have been. And so they're assuming that the peasantry, the serfs, the poor, the lower class people are actually more virtuous than they because they have been wrestling with this guilt for so long. And so it's like, to throw out another book title here, it's like Mao Maoing the Flat Catchers. It's like Radical Chic by Tom Wolfe, where to try and assuage their guilt at living so luxuriously for so long at ignoring the plight of the poor, they're going to overcompensate, and they are, and they have, by insisting that they're in no place to judge. None of us are, in fact. And to make up for lost time, they're going to give cover to whatever the poor supposedly want, which might not even be what the poor want. But there again, nudge is being applied. The nudge theory is being applied all over the world, and it's being applied to all strata of American culture and American society. The upper class, the middle class, and the lower class folk, all alike. And it takes different forms. And this is where big tech gets to be so very useful because you can curate your particular uh, <laughs> inoculation, shall we say, your particular inoculation against certain ideas to the particular interests of the people that you want to nudge. And if that doesn't work, again, if that doesn't work, then you can just quiet them by calling them a conspiracy theorist or shadow banning them or suppressing the reach of their content for their followers, making sure they don't get new followers, uh, throwing bots at them as has been happening for years and years, you know, bots coming out of the woodwork and just saying insane, crazy, random things. Well, that's, I think, you know, if we put all this together, that's the future of generative AI. That's the future. And maybe it's been in play for some time already. But the future of websites like ChatGPT is very probably not just to be something passive that we go to when we want answers to something. These things are also going to fuel bots that online are interacting as though they are real people and they're commenting and they're debating back and forth and they're arguing with you. And if it doesn't make sense, well, is it actually a real person on the other end or is this perhaps artificial intelligence? And if it is artificial intelligence, who is it programmed by? But even if it's not AI, if it's people, it, the, the disturbing thought here is that with as much manipulation as has been going on, as much concealing of information, carefully spinning information, carefully crafting the narrative constantly, day in and day out, even if it's real people, who programmed them and to what end? Yeah, those are good thoughts. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of great books on the left. Um, I think some of those start to get into processes, you know, like mechanisms for deployment of ideology. Um, 
along with the ideology itself, but it's certainly, especially, I mean, I've read that Mao biography. Um, I'm not sure if it's that exact one. I'll have to go back and look at which one I have. But, you know, when you see how Mao operated, he laid down a template. You know, like I said, it's not evil doesn't show up as evil and tell you I'm evil. I'm here to oppress you. It it always masquerades as good. And I mean, what does the Bible say? Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Um, he presents himself as good always. So don't look for the evil bad thing per se. Look for something presenting itself as something good and, and, be, and learn how to look behind it. And I think that's what the Great Reset really does is once you know and understand, here's what the left want, wants. Here's what their objective is according to themselves then it's it becomes much easier to spot it in society to be able to see behind the angel of light to uh, as the wizard of oz you know kind of has it you know pay no attention to the man behind the curtain <laughs> why because they want that's the guy that's pulling all the levers for the great and powerful oz and so once they look behind the curtain they realize that it's not a great and powerful wizard is it's just an old man operating levers, right? There's, it's total de deception. And I think the Great Reset helps people. I think it helps anyone who is looking at the events of the world and they sense this connection to all, all these events. And they say, you know what? Hell looks kind of has this coordinated feel to it. And then you read the Great Reset and you realize that's exactly what it is. And I think the, that some of those other books too are, are great for um, – you know, additionally spotting uh, those ideologies, those agendas, and how they deploy in society. So um, it, it's, it's kind of an interesting thought, though, when I think about what is the antidote to leftism. And not to get too far afield of the Great Reset, but I mean, it really kind of explains why Donald Trump is so hated by the left. Because if you think about it, Donald Trump is not a conservative Christian man. He's not a he's not like uh, a a popular preacher on television who believes in complementarianism and you know <laughs> all this stuff. He is himself uh, kind of a loose guy, a loose cannon, certainly loose morally. Why did the left hate him so much? And when you read the Great Reset, when I, after reading the Great Reset, it it makes more sense. It actually makes perfect sense because Donald Trump is more of a populist. He's a man of the people, you know, and everything he does, he's he's outside of that system. A lot of politicians work within a system, and the system has parameters that are set by uh, political correctness or. You know, these these ideologies, you know, and he operated completely rogue of that. And that made him dangerous because he was exposing how it all worked. And he was he was setting them back in their agenda. And I really I really do believe that that's where the the absolute pure hatred and animosity came from. Here's a guy that's not pulling the direction that we can control.
And that was really the heart of it. And I think if you look, though, it's it's kind of interesting because if you, if you read the Bible, we're on a slow death spiral towards globalism. I mean, there's, it's inevitable that world history concludes with the Antichrist and a global leader. And <laughs> there's no way we can stop it. And it kind of almost feels like this could actually be a cog in that wheel because if you think about this, the problem of centralization, which is really what this is, if the problem is centralization, then the antidote is decentralization. And when you, when you look at the landscape of modern technology and, uh, well, if, if, if you let me back up, if you stop and think about what major advances have ever been made in society, in, in a free society, it's always the solution to a giant problem. And that's why I'm such a big believer in Web 3.0, in blockchain, in uh, trustless systems uh, like blockchain, which is where cryptocurrencies come from. It's because it solves the problem of centralization by decentralizing everything uh, onto a hard copy record that can't be altered. And the problem with that is <laughs> essentially that decentralization decentralizes all nations and it essentially creates globalism. And I have a feeling that my belief is that this, my belief is that decentralization will continue to grow and it's going to solve some of the problems that we have now, like big tech, censorship, things like that. Decentralization solves that. But I think that ultimately that leads us into much more, much closer to the end times, we'll say that, because... There's 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 talk right now. In fact, there's implementation of using blockchain to confirm your identity, which means that your identity is confirmed online on, on a on a public blockchain for anyone to view. And whenever you decentralize like that and you go to a trustless system, then privacy is sacrificed. And so you will eventually have a system where there's not a whole lot of privacy and that opens itself up to a whole new set of problems. But anyway, it's interesting that the cure for this particular disease of leftism might actually cause uh, a, a greater push towards globalism uh, than, than, uh, than leftism ever did. But anyway, that, that might be getting a far afield here. But uh, no, as far as, the, as far as the Great Reset goes, I... I I, I give it five stars out of five. I think it's. I think it should be. Um, I think it would be helpful for anyone wanting to understand the issue to read it, and uh, certainly add those other books to the library as well. But um, no, I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts though on what's the antidote uh, to the left wing agenda, because right now we're in the educational phase. I think you would you would agree where the education is making people aware. So that everybody sees the threat, and I think I think Trump's presidency, at the very least, it raised that flag, because I think before, when it was just Obama, 
I remember us blogging and the feeling was there's a need for people to wake up and see what's going on. And then post Trump, it, it feels more like every, a lot of people are aware of what's going on. So I think, I think the education element is going well. So what do you see as the implementation of, uh, the counter? Uh, is it decentralization like I lean towards or is it something else? And knowing full well that in all of this, you know, I'm reminded of the Bible of the, of the biblical passage that, you know, why do the nations rage and the people's plot a vain thing? And he who sits in the heavens shall laugh, you know, above that layer of George Soros and the world economic forum and Klaus Schwab and the great reset above that layer whether there's another layer above that that we don't see or whether that's the topmost layer on the human level, we know that the very topmost layer is God. Um, looking down on the earth, nothing is outside of his vision. Nothing is outside of his control. And that's a comforting thing. That's a very comforting thing to me. Um, so anyway, be curious to see what you think kind of comes next. Yeah, good thoughts, and that's a good question. As far as the antidote and this conviction that <laughs> we want an antidote, and this is uh, perhaps the building of a better mousetrap, actually, ironically, with decentralization. And so, whether by hook or by crook, whether increased centralization in an apparent way that is obvious that we would recognize historically, which of course is going to be unlikely any way you slice it, with the ultimate fulfillment of what we're promised happens in the end with the book of Revelation. Or whether it's increased decentralization up front in a way that appears to grant greater mobility, greater anonymity, greater privacy, greater individual autonomy, greater freedom, but is ironically more of a net that we get caught up in because similar to big tech online with social media, with Web 2.0, with Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and YouTube and Google and all the rest, the algorithms drive the outcome. And that will be true with blockchain as well. I think to myself of what we read in the scriptures when Jesus says that it's not what comes into a man that makes him unclean, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That I increasingly believe would apply from an ethics standpoint, from a Christian morality and Christian worldview standpoint to coding, <laughs> actually. <laughs> so, so as a controls programmer, as someone who makes a living automating well sites, oil and gas sites. I know that 
all of the automation work that I do starts with a conversation with management about what they hope the outcome will be. What are their priorities? What eventualities do they want to protect against? Whether that is damage to the equipment, decreased production, harm to personnel, a loss of the company's reputation, a damage to their own personal reputation as a manager, certainly, but in all of the above, all of those factors that go into the conversation they have upstream of the automation process, in the end, dictate what is automated, how, and then if it's not quite right or not quite there initially, what gets tweaked. It's all predicated on verbal communication, which, to believe the words of Jesus, which we must as Christians, is a reflection of what is in the heart of man. Now apply that to Web 2.0, which we currently are experiencing directly, and think forward to Web 3.0, which is being built out as we speak, and realize that all the same dynamics apply to Web 3.0, particularly when decentralized finance or decentralized anything, a decentralized marketplace of ideas as much as a decentralized marketplace of capital from a financial standpoint invested in projects and resource gathering or transportation or buying and selling and trading or refining or <laughs> turning into finished goods which then you will buy and sell and trade in all of the above come back to what is in the human heart and what is in the nature of man what will man choose when it's available to him that has to do with as the Puritans would say man's affections and if web 2.0 has informed and shaped and molded what so many of us at the forefront of the technological advancements with Web 3.0 think to desire and to aspire to and want, then even Web 3.0 and everything moving forward will be informed by and to some extent limited due to the kind of mass marketing that's been done to this point. And so long as it continues, even if it's a poorly kept secret at this point and the cat's out of the bag, it's still had an effect on a great many people greater than what they realize and what they want to realize because it's a disturbing thought. Now, it's a disturbing thought just like being confronted with our sinful nature if there is no antidote. And so I think that's why a lot of people 
don't want to believe it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to think about it because it causes them to be fearful and destabilizes their view of the world, their view of themselves. It, it, it makes it difficult to function in a world that is that scary. And so the easiest option is to just dismiss it all. Well, what if there is an actual antidote, though? What if there is an actual check and balance against all of this? All of a sudden, you've got people's attention if what is being slipped into our hearts and our minds, ultimately, is a kind of poison. If there's an antidote, well then I might be willing to hear you tell me that I've been poisoned. But if there's no antidote, well maybe ignorance is bliss. And just, <laughs> it's just, don't tell me. What I don't know, I'll be happier without knowing. And when it's my time, it's my time, so be it. But if there is an antidote, then, okay, I need to know more about that. And in order to actually want an antidote, then I need to understand how, how it is that I came to be compromised in this way, or how we came to be compromised in this way. Since we are social creatures, made for a relationship, how is it that this has affected my relationship with my wife, or my children, or my brother, or my parents, or how did this affect my relationship with friends down through the years, or coworkers, or bosses, or strangers even? How did this affect my parents' relationship with one another? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If it really is a fulfillment of the book of Revelation, coming into clearer view, which, if Mark Murano is correct, if he's got enough of the information to come to meaningful conclusions and let the reader be the judge, not just of the title and not just of the premise, but of the book itself, well then, it would seem the antidote is to recognize that he who sits in heaven laughs. He holds them in derision. <laughs> it would be to recognize that however carefully laid these plans are, best laid plans of mice and men, even better still, are the plans that have been laid down by God who told us these things would happen and also told us that there would be a blessing from those who read and studied and pondered and took to heart the conclusion of the matter, the end of the story. And so what that really comes down to is actually the surest antidote, as simple as it might sound, is a kind of antivirus software for our hearts and our minds, because now we all think of ourselves in terms of computing. <laughs> Another Neil Postman book comes to mind that I just recently read, Technopoly, great book, which speaks to that. We think of ourselves in mechanical terms and computing terms because computers and mechanical things are so prevalent and so much a part of life. But but if we want a kind of 
antivirus software to cope with this poison, an antidote, if you will, then it really is the truth of God's word, which allows us, by God's grace, to distinguish truth from falsehood and good from evil and what is the will of God for our lives in this. Because here's the thing, one of the disturbing possibilities, even for Christians, if this were the end times, let's just go there. If this were the end times, there's a lot of Christians who know just enough to be dangerous to themselves and despair. At which Revelation says many people will do in the last days. They will despair of life itself. And their love for one another will grow cold. And we do see that as well. People will increasingly cold and apathetic towards one another, immune to consideration. Not worried at all what would happen to their neighbor, even somebody just a few feet from them, passing on on the other side. But there too, the antidote would be to expect that if God has us here at this time, at this moment in history, he must also have a good purpose, a good role for us to play. And now what does his word tell us about what that might be? What is the purpose? What sense of purpose and belonging can we derive as Christians in the midst of what appears to be a better mousetrap being built before our eyes? How can we testify to the truth? How can we love God well and truly and thoroughly in the midst of this? How can we love our neighbor as we love ourselves? How can we love the church and build it up and strengthen what remains? I think that's the antidote, is to be thinking in that direction in light of the particular challenges, not necessarily novel at root, because the root is man's sinful nature, man's alienation from the God who made him. But these are particular challenges to our day and age compared with what we know from recorded history, compared to what we've seen from times past based on the technological capabilities of not just our ancestors, but the forebearers spiritually of the people who are contriving these things. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? Is that at least the beginning of an answer? Is that enough to go on to get started? saying there is an antidote, there must be an antidote. Yeah, interesting. I, I definitely think, I mean, obviously, the real antidote is everyone bows their knee to the one true God. And what does the Bible say? Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But that's not going to happen until the human systems have ended. And I think so. I think that your 
I think that the antidote that you're talking about is the final antidote. It is the one that exists at the end, that uh, human systems end and God's systems begin. <laughs> um, I think in terms of, of a more temporary direction, um, when we talk about the antidote to communism, the old Russian Soviet style, the Mao style uh, communism, uh, we talk about democracy because the idea is that if you have choice, people have choice, they will choose differently than how the government would choose for them. And not only that, but people are much better at choosing the path that their life will follow than than the government is at dictating what people should do and shouldn't do. And within that context, Christianity thrives because a Christian is allowed to follow God's will to their own conclusion. They're not bound by what the state does for them. And so, therefore, you end up with Christians who pursue uh, every type of industry imaginable, and therefore they're planting missionaries <laughs> In every in every field imaginable, the I and I think that uh, that's that's the main antidote to communism on a on a human level is is democracy, uh, freedom of choice, if you will, not not necessarily uh, you know a true democratic voting system. I'm just saying a democracy as we understand a democracy in a republic, you know, um, and I see. The coming of Web 3.0. Yes, it's programmable by the human heart, by 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 humans. However, there's a layer there's a layer deeper than that that I think is relevant, and that is, um, really what's at the heart of Web 3.0 is the money control of the money supply. If you think about it, money is power in society money is the way to control uh to to maintain control over people and traditionally there's a very few uh small minority of people we call them the elites or the, the, the kings um that can print money that everyone accepts is currency and they have the power to set the laws they have the power to print the money they can control the money supply etc so therefore, um, that's really, I think, one of the main power dynamics at play. When you have Web 3.0, Web 3.0 Web and blockchain, anyone who can solve a problem via the blockchain and can code something that solves an issue... Um, they now have the power to print money because they can tokenize their blockchain by either proof of work, which incentivizes um, computer power to solve complex algorithms that resolve each block and seal them up. And as a result, they earn tokens, which are uh, can be used as currency or proof of stake, 
which means that you're rewarded for uh, adding your your tokens to uh, validators, and that that that's what secures the network. But those are those are tokens that have value. That literally is if if you're able to print tokens that have value, that literally is printing money. And so what essentially we're moving towards is a society in which individuals who solve problems and can code them are going to be able to print their own money, which puts the power of the printing press in the hands of the individual, not a centralized government. And obviously that's why I think the Fed and centralized governments view it as such a threat and are so opposed to it, is that it takes that authority and power out of their hands through decentralization and primarily, at least initially, through decentralized finance. And I think that's uh, then the code itself becomes a sort of a constitution where it's amoral. It's not living. It's not programmable. It simply is. You follow the rules of the code or you don't access the system, <laughs> right? And it requires people to adopt it. It can't be enforced on you. You have to choose, you can choose voluntarily to accept it or not. And so it becomes a sort of a new sort of uh, democracy um, that is removed from this centralization. And I, I find that concept intriguing. And I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult for me to wrap my mind around the whole concept and where it's going. But I think, I think on a temp, I think in a temporary sense, on a human sense, I think that becomes the, uh, I think that becomes the antidote for the new, the new push for communism is, is to remove power from those who have so much money and so much control that they can um, fix the money supply and control who gets what. Well, you simply tokenize everything through blockchain where anyone who can solve a problem can create a tokenized blockchain, which is essentially printing money. I think that's that to me is the is the answer in the short term. But... And, and I'm and I'm for that, even though it's a human system, even though it's corruptible, and even though it doesn't eliminate bad actors, it, I think, preserves the freedom of the Christian to make their own choices rather than work. I mean, we, Christianity will survive no matter what system it's in, right? It can survive in communism. It can survive in the most oppressive Islamic regimes. It can survive in capitalism, socialism, any system you want to throw at it, Christianity is always going to survive. But where it has always thrived the best in terms of spreading itself is typically in free, open societies. And that's why I think I'm for um, democracy and for the democratization of systems because I think that, that that gives Christianity a little more breathing room to flourish and expand. And I think that in so much as we are faithful to do that, I think um, God will allow that to happen. And maybe that's why the left is, I mean, I, I kind of wonder why, you know, if that's, 
you know, if you look at the arc of human history, God has moved kind of the center of Christendom, if you will, to different places at different times. And it's always followed along this path of where is it going to be spread the farthest? You know, you think about the colonial era and European expansion, and it's something that the left detests, you know, the Howard Zins of the world. I think that the main reason that they hate colonialism is not not because of the quote-unquote evils of colonialism. I think the main reason that they are against it is that it it is primarily responsible for spreading Christianity around the world. Uh, no country uh, has sent out more missionaries than Europe and the United States. And therefore, Europe and the United States become the target for the left's hatred because they hate Christianity. Um, so they assign all sorts of evils to it and they dismiss it and then they say that it should never have been spread. And so they, you know, they assign racism and sexism and all sorts of sins to Christianity. And of course, there's examples, there's enough examples of that actually happening that it lends some credibility to, you know, those who aren't real, uh, who don't really study uh, the arc of history very well. I think that it lends them to believe that, hey, maybe the left has a point here. Maybe it would be better not to spread this. But the reality is that I think that God uses uh, God uses uh, well, I'll put it this way. I think I think people are naturally desirous of exploration and to share ideas and to move beyond the bounds of their current limits. I think we're wired that way as explorers. You know, it's kind of like in the game Civ Six where we play, where, you know, there's this natural desire to find out, well, what's beyond the edges of the map, you know? And I think that God uses that curiosity, that built-in curiosity and drive to to grow his kingdom, to grow his word, to spread it out and advance it. And so I think I that's my opinion. Um, I don't think... I I think that uh this I think that it, it, the democracy that replaces sort of the communist idea decentralization really is the code word for the democratization of the world. And while I do think that that can't last forever and eventually it has to become centralized again. I think in the short term, at least, for the Christians of the next generation, our children, for example, and their children, I think that it creates a world where they're, um, they're more free to stretch their spiritual legs and have an impact by spreading the gospel to uh, the outer reaches of the world that way. But, uh, yeah, I, I hope that's true anyway. Okay, so let's take that idea, that more temporary and immediate and practical solution, which, yes, I agree we need to have and not just a very general theological framework, but within a 
theological framework of believing that everything in Revelation will be fulfilled, God wins in the end, the church prevails by God's grace over a one-world government, which is repressive and hostile to the Christian faith and testimony. Let's take this idea of blockchain being a way for Christians to still function in society, to be able to travel, to be able to buy and sell and trade. Well, let me ask you this, because you've studied crypto quite a lot more than I have. If crypto, let's say, for instance, with the collapse of FTX and that big scandal where we still don't know everything just yet, but it certainly looks as though it was a kind of <laughs> money laundering scheme for Democrat politicians and, and others <clears throat> who they invested, they regulated, they hyped it up, they spoke favorably of it, and then it collapsed. And then it's like, okay, well, the, the Sam Bankman Freed end up, you know, kind of being Epstein in a, in a, in a certain way, in a certain sense, does, does he end up getting Epstein because, it, you know, he was the, the go-between and he's a convenient fall guy. Well, it, it almost doesn't matter to the larger ambitions. And, and I don't, again, I, I'll defer to you. I, I don't understand these things as well as you do, but it looks as though the Federal Reserve, for instance, is pushing a digital dollar that would be the Fed coin, right? So this would be perhaps an end run around the decentralization of finance via cryptocurrency if the central banks in the U.S. and around the world basically seize that crypto space and say, in order for it to be legal, in order for it to be legitimate, it has to be our crypto. Well, then it ceases to be crypto, really. It just becomes, you know, it, it just becomes an extension of the current financial system, not really decentralized per se, if they control all of the entrances and exits for currency. When you're selling and trading and buying crypto, for instance, you have to keep tax records. Well, that to me looks like perhaps possibly, correct me if I'm wrong, a way of uh, almost like a, a gun registry database, which Democrats and big government types also are a fan of, I think, for very similar reasons, where the presumption of innocence is not present. The presumption of needing to ask for permission is supreme. And if they could have their druthers, the gun control folks would say, let's put every firearms owner in America in a database where we know we have serialized <laughs> all of their firearms. We know exactly what they have, what address it's being kept at. And if we have a problem with that person, well, we just go in and we take their guns. We say, oh, you're not trustworthy to own firearms anymore. You're a, you're a, quote, danger to yourself and others. Well, very similar kind of thinking if it's not unique to their attitude towards firearms will be and is being applied to crypto where they say, 
anytime you're going to convert your crypto into uh, dollars or vice versa, anytime you're going to convert your dollars into crypto, we must have records of that. And so in that way, they monitor the ingoing and the outcoming of the crypto markets. And then if they have their own crypto currency, so-called supposedly, a kind of faux crypto currency, then in that way, they re-centralize. So everybody in crypto is trying to decentralize. So they're building out this technology and this capability. But is it easy for a potential one world government to just say, we are going to identify you via blockchain to where you have to validate your identity online and even with the internet of things in the broader economy for access to buildings or access to public spaces or access to public transportation. We're going to use that same blockchain that you guys have all built out to be decentralized to actually re-centralize. And if it comes to that, if that is actually what comes next, well then, I mean, from my vantage point, it's easy to see how, uh, coupled with other news, including through COVID, uh, other brainstorming from the likes of Bill Gates, who Mark Morano talks about in The Great Reset as being a big-time investor in vaccines, the development of vaccines, the promotion of vaccines around the world, also the war gaming of <laughs> what if we have a, a pandemic, a global pandemic? Oh, hey, look at this. Just a couple months, a couple of short months after the trial run, the, the test run uh, of what our response would be. Here we have one. How convenient. If Bill Gates and others have been talking about maybe even having some kind of digital ID that stores all of your financial information, your medical records, your birth date, your address, your travel uh, records, your passport, your driver's license, whether you have a, you know, I suppose they wouldn't volunteer this, but, but we would say maybe you know, if, whether you have a concealed carry uh, weapons permit or whether you have a criminal record or what have you. Well, all of that, if it's increasingly streamlined to make it supposedly more convenient, that is to say, it's also going to be increasingly prevalent that your ability to buy, sell, and trade would be contingent on your accepting, you know, one of these digital IDs. Some people have definitely already developed and even tried it out in certain small pockets here and there. Uh, it just under the skin, just under the skin, a little microchip that grants you access to secure areas, like let's say a building that you work at for your employer, or let's say a government installation that they don't want just anybody coming in and out. It's a military base or it's a research facility or what have you. Rather than you producing identification, like a photo ID, if you can just step next to a sensor and wave your hand in front of it, and that sensor reads the microchip and says, oh yeah, I know who you are. Yep. You're good. Come on in. Well, then also, too, that can be coupled with the ESG investment and 
what China is doing with social credit scores. And this is not actually too far-fetched because a lot of people are talking about these in the same breath and saying that essentially ESG is the importation of the smuggling in of a Chinese-style social credit score to the U.S. and to Western economies, to Western societies, under the guise of <clears throat> free market or the illusion of the free market. These are private corporations that are choosing to do this, or these are private investment firms that are choosing to move money around based on the promotion of diversity, equity, and inclusivity, or environmental, social, and governmental good behavior. But, but it is. I mean, it, it is, <clears throat> for corporations, it is a, so, a social credit score. And then if, by extension, you can roll out the social credit score for corporations to the employees of those corporations, and HR will suddenly be making hiring decisions and firing decisions and promotion decisions and giving out raises or not giving out raises based on whether you are helping the company to meet their ESG uh, scores and their targets there, well, then it, it is really an end run around the Constitution. I think we see this with some of the Twitter files revelations put out by Matt Taibbi and others where it turns out that all of the <laughs> oh, the, Twitter's a private company. Don't talk about what they do and don't do towards conservatives. If you don't like it, go start your own. It turns out for years and years behind the scenes, you had congressional staff members, for instance, like uh, those in Adam Schiff's office, contacting Twitter behind the scenes and asking Twitter to remove certain accounts or content, shadow ban, uh, ban entirely outright certain journalists and other public figures because Adam Schiff just didn't like them or his staff just didn't like them. You see the FBI and even the Pentagon getting special first come first serve preferential treatment in either exceptions to the rules for them with fake accounts that they could use to influence the Middle East and the Muslim world, or again, going after people who were supposedly promoting misinformation, disinformation, malinformation online. All of it, again, an end run around constitutional limitations for the government. What, from a practical standpoint, from a short-term and more temporary perspective, do Christians do if this apparent decentralization push actually turns out to be an even harder recentralization or more centralization than ever before along the lines of the world government summit that Elon Musk just spoke to and warned about too much cooperation at? Or what if it ends up being actually the fulfillment of the larger ambitions of the WEF, where you've got Klaus Schwab, the founder of the WEF, the primary mastermind of the WEF for 50 years, saying that those who control the technology that's currently being developed and rolled out 
will be master of the world. It it's actually <laughs> it's actually harder to disassociate that from the mark of the beast, I think, than it is to associate that with what Christians for decades have been saying increasingly looks like what we read about in Revelation. But going back to your point about how Christians can use these things to survive, to endure, to provide for their families, to protect their families, to build up the church, to advance the gospel. Do you see blockchain and crypto, even if in some big ways it's hijacked by the central banks and the governments that are on board with the Great Reset, do you see there still being a way for Christians, if we're forced to go underground, as it were, to a kind of dark web operation, can we use these things to buy and sell and trade with each other and survive and endure? What do you think? Wow, um, <laughs> you entered into some really heavy territory there. And I think that it would take maybe 20 hours worth of good conversations to <laughs> sort that one out. Um, no, you're touching on a lot of great topics. Um, I'm going to try to see if I can condense this, condense my, my response down a little bit because... <sighs> Yeah, we're talk we're we're starting to deal in the realm of, of political and financial theory and that is hard because that's hard to be concise with because you know, you're talking about so many different factors and ideas. But I'll just uh I guess the way I'll put it is this. Okay, so here's the framework that I see the Christian life. I think that on this world, on on the on this earth I think we're playing a chess game against a grandmaster that we're ultimately going to lose. It's ultimately checkmate for humanity on the on old earth. God destroys the old earth. We know that happens in Revelation. So this is not the world that we're set out to, to preserve. We don't have to create the perfect system that makes everybody thrive and everybody worship God for the end of all time. So, what is the goal of the Christian then? The goal of the Christian is to share the gospel and spread God's word to create witness, uh, create new witnesses of his kingdom. Be fishers of men, as, as Jesus described to the disciples. So, let's reverse engineer that. From a human government standpoint, how, how do you do that? How do you, prov how do you promote that message? And I think, personally, that the answer is that the gospel has spread the most and the farthest and the most translations have been done, spread in other languages, and more missionaries have been trained and sent out. More pastors have been trained and sent out. Um, and more people have been able to openly declare their testimony and be a witness in a society that's free and open and democratic. 
Um, there may be better systems overall. It doesn't mean that one system, you know, is Christian and another is not Christian. It just means that in our current setup of of demo- uh, where you have a democracy and a republic, a sovereign nation with many sovereign states, you have lots of checks and balances, and you have basic notions of freedom. That is what fosters. Uh, that that is the environment in which Christianity uh, can thrive to a large extent. Now, it, it doesn't mean it doesn't have problems. It doesn't mean it doesn't get fat and lazy, and split apart over small little itty bitty issues and form like twenty thousand denominations. There's problems there, but in terms of just the environment that you want to kind of create, is you want decentralized uh, checks and balances democracy versus communism, centralization, central planning. So that's that's my context. Um, when you look at cryptocurrency, how does that work into it? How does de- decentralized finance work into that? Well, in my opinion, in my belief, I think that the number one way that, well, it's back up. Governments, they're not God. They are not omniscient, omnipotent or omnipresent. They don't know everything. They can't be everywhere. And, and that's kind of like a, a trope in our, spy, our modern spy movies, right? Is that it seemingly you can be in the middle of nowhere uh, with no communications completely off the grid and the government's going to find you somehow. You know, <laughs> They're always around the corner. They're always sending guys. And that's just not real. Um, the government doesn't actually have the ability to do that. So how do they control a massive amount of people? How do a small group of, that's made up of just thousands of people control hundreds of millions of people? Well, the number one way to do that is through the money supply. And that's fiat currency. Fiat currency being money through decree. We say this is money, therefore it's money. We say that you know, we print money. And you have to accept it. And I think I made this point before, but money is really a story. I've never thought of it that way. But it's it's very true. Money is a story told by those in power. We call them the elites, but it's the those who control the money supply. They tell a story, and we all accept it. And that's what money is. Uh, there's nothing particularly val- valuable about a little rectangular piece of paper that has a 20 on it, Abraham Lincoln's face on it, other than we all agree that it has, and it's worth $20. And every store will accept it as $20. Um, so all you have to have in a centralized government is fiat currency, because then you can say, you can make it difficult on people. You can give subsidies to industries that you want to see succeed. And you can give regulations and penalties to industries that you want to not see succeed, like green energy versus fossil fuels. So in that situation, even the government has to be a little careful because they can't just they can't just indefinitely they can't just ban fossil fuels and promote green energy because the costs would be so enormous that people would rebel. They would revolt. So they've got to do it in increments, but that's their control mechanism. Their control mechanism is the monetary supply. So what happens if you have a system where 
the individual can suddenly create money and it's widely accepted. Well, that's a game changer because now it's not only the government that can produce something of value that can, that can just decree this is finance, this is currency. An individual person can as well by providing a service on the blockchain that's tokenized via proof of stake or proof of work. And so can the government just come in and just, why can't the government just come in and shut that down? Well, they can to a, an extent, but it's really questionable how much they really can. I, I think they, they would have already done so if they could. But, but what's the fundamental principle of currency? If everyone accepts it, then it's currency. You know, if we just decided, like if we lived in a society, you know, post-apocalyptic where, you know, in your examples, Christians were living underground, we could create a mesh network of Christians who all agreed that agates were currency, you know, and as long as we accepted them as currency, then it would be our trading platform. And even in a more primitive society or primitive way, what if we exchange, what if, you know, you have a farmer a Christian farmer who raises chickens and one who raises cows. Well, the currency would be the livestock. You'd trade chickens for cows or, you know, you'd have to set a value. There'd be a value that would be agreed upon. Hey, uh, I don't know what the value would be. A hundred chickens equals one cow. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) You know, but you would set that value. That would be the new currency. Now, the problem with that is that it's not standardized, right? You know, one farmer to another might have currency that they accept in a trade. But that doesn't mean that every farmer everywhere would accept that same value. But that's the beauty of of the blockchain is that anyone who has Internet access can access it. So the question is, can you shut down an exchange uh, a decentralized exchange? The answer is really no. The only way you can really do it is by eliminating people's ability to connect to the Internet. And the problem with that is any country that does that has automatically doomed themselves to economic failure. You're, you're going to fall behind. It's, so it's, self, it's self-defeating. So I don't think the answer is that they can eliminate it. They can't just come in by decree and eliminate blockchain. What they're trying to do is they're trying to to um, kill the demand. They're trying to kill the onboarding process. Like like you know, cryptocurrencies as you you know you've dabbled in it. The onboarding process from fiat money like the dollar to say Bitcoin or Ethereum or one of these blockchains is still very user unfriendly. It's it's complicated. And centralized finance, centralized exchanges, where you had groups of people like Sam Bankman-Fried who would run these exchanges. You deposit your money in the exchange. It's on the blockchain. And theoretically, when you go to pull it out, it's there. Well, they got greedy, practiced fractional reserve banking, took part of the funds that they weren't supposed to, and reinvested it and lost 
And then when it was found out, it <laughs> there was a bank run. Everyone started withdrawing their money. And they found out that, oh, there's no money to withdraw. And so you're just out of luck. And that's what caused the finance, you know, that's what caused the the FTX collapse. Um, now, the interesting thing is that the charade would have, excuse me, would have continued a long time more had the blockchain not been involved because it was actually uh, media examining the blockchain that they realized that FTX's reserves were not what they said they were. That's how they found out was public record. So there's a sort of accountability there, but that's that's maybe another topic. The bottom line is that centralized finance was the easiest way to onboard. You could go to a website, sign up. You could you could link your bank account. You could move it directly into an exchange, and you could trade in and out of currencies across all these different blockchains. Decentralized finance is much more difficult. You can't do that, but it's extreme. It's almost impossible, I would think, for a government to shut down a decentralized exchange because it doesn't exist in a country. Where does it exist? It exists uh, in cyberspace. <laughs> you know, it's part of a blockchain. There's no CEO to arrest. There's no uh, building to invade to shut it down. It exists on its own. Um, that's and that's part of the beauty of it, and I think that with these regulations, I think that they're trying to eliminate the onboarding process. But I, you know, I think it's going to come back to bite the United States, especially in the in the rear end, because all that happens when you uh, regulate something to death is that if there's another country who sees a way to gain economic advantage by allowing it they'll just allow it. So the businesses will just simply pick up and move to another country, which by the way, where was FTX located? It was in the Bahamas and they had a deal with the Bahamian government. Um, you know, and a lot of the, uh, Bahamian, Baham, Bahamian, is that how you say it? But anyway, Bahamian officials were token holders of FTX and had special stakes and stuff like that. Um, so, I think that's, you know, the United States in any industry, you can't just regulate it and tax it. You can only do that so much before it decides, you know what, we're moving our operations overseas. We're moving our operations to Canada or Mexico or wherever, or from California to Texas, like Elon Musk did, you know. I mean, that's, so, so they have to be careful. And unless you can get all the governments of the world to suddenly agree to ban something, it's just not going to happen. So uh, I think that's the real hope of decentralization. That's the moving of the king out of the check and behind a little wall of, of pawns for the time being. He survived for another three moves at least. Uh, but ultimately, you're absolutely right. Ultimately, the blockchain, I think, does essentially make it easier. The coming of Web 3.0 does make it easier for social credit scoring. Uh, and also the Fed coin will come out, I have no doubt. Um, and I have no doubt that they will be able to program it to have an expiration date. Hey, you have to use this stimulus money that we gave you electronically by a certain date. Uh, 
and it'll do away with the with the actual paper dollar because when you have paper dollars you don't have control you can't tell what people spend that on so anyway that's i think the the condensed version of a much longer conversation where i think that uh we 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 avoid checkmate for another day <laughs> so curious to see what you think about that those are some excellent thoughts, Micah. And it occurs to me, as you hinted at and alluded to, that there's a lot more that needs to be said about this. There's a lot more that needs to be unpacked. There's a lot more that we need to understand and to know in order to be wise here and to understand what it means to participate in the economy what it means to do business, what it means to buy, regardless of whether we think of ourselves as participating in the economy per se, we all are, right? We're all buying groceries and paying utilities bills and paying rent, if not paying a mortgage, or if we have the mortgage paid off or we live rent-free someplace, we're spending our money other places if we have money coming in or somebody's spending money on our behalf or if we're going to be, you know, in, in some cases, uh, required to <laughs> make any decisions whatsoever for ourselves in the economy or ask others to influence others to on our behalf, say if we're in a dependent state, we have to understand that our participation in the economy is being influenced all the time at all levels, both by our peers those who are subordinate to us, those who are competitors of ours, those who govern us, those who rule over us, those who want us to buy their products or services or not buy their competitors' products and services. And so there's a lot, there's a lot that we, in order to be wise and informed consumers or producers, we have to understand about monetary theory and the workings of money. Uh, long and short of it. Now, that's not to say that we come to love money. Actually, the more I study money, the more I feel a bit dirty and like I, I want to go <laughs> live off the grid in the woods and not have to participate in the economy because there are so many opportunities to be taken advantage of. There are so many opportunities to be uh, sucked in. And, and once you realize how influenced you are in so many subtle ways, day in and day out, through advertising, marketing, word of mouth, the Jones effect, et cetera, et cetera, it, it's a bit overwhelming. But that is to say, I think it would be good for us to continue this conversation in a future installment of the Signal Conversations or whatever we want to call this. Uh, signal virtuing or virtue signaling or whatever, the virtue signaling conversations. It would be good for us to continue this conversation in a future podcast episode because I would really like to talk about what the Bible has to say about money and currency and economics and how economics intersect with the sovereign will of God. Because here's the thing. The love of money may be the root of all kinds of evil, but God's economy is supreme and sovereign. 
he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which is not a precise way of describing what belongs to him, but it's just enough to convey, hey, it's everything, right? Think of the wealthiest person that you could possibly imagine, the wealthiest uh, cattle rancher you could possibly imagine. Yeah, God is wealthier than that guy. A thousand hills, that's a lot of hills. That's a lot of cattle. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and its inhabitants. And so I would love to continue this conversation towards the end of reframing the way we think about our transactions, the way that we use our time, attention, money, energy to uh, produce desirable results for ourselves and one another, and ultimately as Christians to the glory of God, because that's going to be key. That paradigm shift is going to be absolutely key to having peace, to not being anxious, to not being unwise, to not being taken advantage of. What is it that Paul writes in Thessalonians? That we should aspire to live quiet lives, working with our hands, minding our own business, so that we can walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Well, that sounds really great. How does it happen unless we have some kind of a grasp of what goes into it and how to accomplish such a thing? But I think I'm going to wrap it up. We'll call this good for this one. And uh, for everybody listening, this is a bit experimental, but I think that if you enjoy uh, this conversation, if you benefit from it, you should definitely share this with the people that you know. And uh, just tune in. Tune in for the next one. Tune in for our next installment in the coming days or weeks where we will be delving into what the Bible says about currency, what the Bible says about money and how that relates to our Christian life. But thank you very much, Micah. I really appreciated the input from you and the conversation. And for everybody else, do check out The Great Reset by Mark Morano. There's a lot of food for thought in there. There's a lot that helps to make sense of what we've been living through for the past three years but you know really for a lot longer than that even if we didn't realize it it might be unsettling but god wins in the end that's what we know from his word so as always thank you for listening until next time god bless You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Oh.